Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of this series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Whatever Happened to Enlightenment? The talk was given by Matthew Files on October 21st, 2023, via Zoom. Matthew facilitates groups that support people to look deeper into their process, formulate their own questions, and become responsible for their choices. In this talk, he speaks about the pursuit of enlightenment that he and many others were passionate about in the past. Matthew reflects on the way we are sometimes motivated by an ideal in our younger years, such as enlightenment, which may get lost if we don't pay attention to it. He says that we may lament as we get older if we can't find our way back to it or just don't have the energy for it. There is some discussion about David Foster Wallace's commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2008, which considers the choice we have about the meaning that we give to experience. Matthew's live talk began with a song by Leonard Cohen, It Seemed the Better Way, and ended with the song String Reprise Treaty from his album You Want It Darker. These songs do not appear on the podcast for copyright reasons, but you are welcome to listen to them online as they created a mood for the discussion. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Matthew Files. So, yesterday's truth is not necessarily the truth today. That's kind of the thrust of the talk this evening. And I really wanted to start with Uncle Leonard as a mood setter. It's got quite a mood to it, that song. So this talk, let me tell you what it's not about. <laughs> if you just read the title, you go, oh, this is like, what happened to my enlightenment? Where did my enlightenment go? That's not what it's about. It's about the quest for enlightenment, the seeking for enlightenment, or whatever it might be. Enlightenment, non-dual realization, freedom, whatever label we want to give. To the spiritual search, that thing, that thing that's at the end of the rainbow that we're looking after. So this was probably back in the early 90s sometime. And I was listening to a radio interview, and the interviewer was interviewing an ex-CIA agent who was talking about how influential the CIA had been in introducing LSD to the American subculture in the 60s. And so they were having this discussion about the use of LSD today. It's probably not nearly as what it was back in the 60s or 70s. And the guy was like, oh, no, no. He says, it's much more. And I was, whoa, really? LSD was definitely an introduction to me for the spiritual path. It was something that definitely opened some doors. But at that point, it had been probably 15 years or more. God, I didn't even think people did that anymore because I didn't do it. I figured just had gone away. But this guy's saying, no, it's even more prevalent than it ever was. So, so when I first really got on the path, the spiritual path, it was about enlightenment. 
getting enlightened. That was the pursuit for me. And these days, these days have been going on for a long time. I don't hang out with people who talk about enlightenment, their pursuit of enlightenment. People talk about enlightenment, but most talk about enlightenment is kind of boring. Trying to define enlightenment, what is enlightenment, what's freedom, all that kind of stuff. I find it relatively boring, but nobody talks about that pursuit. So I'm going, is that pursuit of enlightenment still a thing? Enlightenment is hardly even a part of my vocabulary anymore. So I wonder, are people still pursuing enlightenment in the world? Is that like a thing the way it was back in the 70s? And I don't know. I don't have an answer. So this may not be a great survey group to get an answer to that question. I mean, maybe it is. I'm assuming, given the nature of the talk and this talk series, that everybody's on some sort of spiritual path. I don't think anybody wandered in here off the streets, so to speak. And even then, it doesn't mean you're not on the spiritual path, but people most likely came with a particular background and particular intention. And from the looks of it, most of us are older. And that's mostly who I hang out with, too. So that may be a factor in the reason that nobody talks about getting enlightened, attaining enlightenment. So the question comes up about, well, maybe that's just a factor of getting older and not having the energy to do it anymore. Because it takes a lot of energy to pursue that, to pursue those kinds of goals. And maybe we just get older and like, let's just talk about being happy and healthy and holy. And maybe we can find some compassion and kindness somewhere and forget that whatever it was. And I'm making some assumptions here. Maybe the attainment of some spiritual goal called enlightenment, whatever, was not a big thing for anybody, for people when they got on the spiritual path. I'm assuming it was because it was for me. So I figured, yeah, everybody, why would you get on the spiritual path unless you wanted something from it? Unless you wanted to get something that you didn't already have. So that's the question for me. Or is it just about attention? Because I think it takes a degree of attention to sustain that kind of search, that kind of pursuit, that kind of trying to attain or get somewhere. And maybe my attention has just been completely distracted by life, family, kids, job, grandkids, all the problems of life. Or as Zorba the Greek said, the whole catastrophe. And just get distracted and all that. So that, that focus, that intensity of spiritual pursuit gets waylaid. The attention goes elsewhere. Enlightenment, to me, there might be a danger to the pursuit of enlightenment in the sense that you are going against the stream. It helps to be in a group, to have that intensity happen, because it's a little harder for oneself, I think. There's an aspect of going against the norm. What do you mean by going against the norm? Nobody in my family of origin thought about enlightenment. My mom would have preferred I be an alcoholic and be normal in that context than to step outside of that. And that was radical to step away from that family 
illness, so to speak, the thinking, the sleep of that was radical. You do this because you have to, (laughs) at the risk of being singled out. So when you said breaking away from the norm, to me, the norm is here. I embody the norm of this culture. Like I have it all. If you look out there and you go, oh, that's the norm. That's what we want to step away from. That's all here in me. So the stepping away to me is internal. It's the conditioning, which doesn't necessarily have to do with anything external. That might be true for me now. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, yeah, that wasn't true for me. Yeah, I agree with that too. It probably took me (laughs) 10 or 15 years to start looking inwards rather than looking outwards. I want to come back to so much of this for me revolves around the, the possibility of just simple lack of attention in this pursuit. So there's two things I'm looking at. One is, okay, where did it go? Where did this pursuit of enlightenment go? It just seemed to sort of evaporate it. And is it simply a lack of attention, allowing myself to be caught up in, like I was saying before, the problems of life? Or is there something natural, actually natural about it, perhaps evolutionary about it? You know, and it's just part of the process where perhaps the pursuit continues, but it doesn't have the same intensity. Naturally, not by any fault, like the way I'm implicating myself about lacking in attention, letting myself be distracted. And putting this out there as questions for myself, these are the questions that I have great monologues about in my head. These are the questions. Where did it go? What happened to it? Is it even important? Was it ever important? That pursuit. And when I say pursuit, You know, I'm not talking necessarily about heroics. I've never been into heroics. Doing heroic sadhana? (laughs) No, thank you. All the stories of the great sages and saints, the Tibetans, these guys that sit out in the snow, or Marpa and Milarepa, these guys who just did total heroics. Yeah, I'm glad I wasn't born then. Definitely not my style. And I'm not even inclined to think that those kinds of heroics are needed in the pursuit, that it could actually be a very gradual, persistent, slow, tedious, boring pursuit. And yet it still goes on. But when I look for that in myself, continuing to pursue this goal that I've set up for myself or did at one time, And all the great spiritual books talk about it. But I really like that quote from Suzuki Roshi, where he said, why would you want enlightenment? You might not like it. So it really throws a a monkey wrench in my thinking about enlightenment. And I imagine it's many other people's. Enlightenment is a good thing. Going to want this. I am going to benefit from it. And then here's Suzuki Roshi, who I have great respect for, saying, "Yeah, you know, you might not like it. Why are you pursuing this thing? 
perhaps speaking from his own experience, he didn't like it very much. <laughs> Possibly. He seemed to be a pretty jolly fellow, though, from everything I heard about him. I never met him personally. But the things I've read, he definitely had a wicked sense of humor. And he was terribly absent-minded as well, which I thought was great for me because I tend to be also. So it gave me great validation to continue being absent-minded. Now, there was this great story about him going into San Francisco, I think from Tassajara, which is north of there. He was supposed to do a ceremony. And he went in early in the day with one of his students, and they ended up going out to the beach and sightseeing, and they forgot that he was supposed to do this ceremony. So the people called Tassajara, and his wife picked up the phone, and she ended up going into the city to do the ceremony because he had just completely forgot about it. He was wandering around going to the beach. Here's this enlightened guy who's supposed to be on top of it all, completely absent-minded. But anyway, the pursuit. Is anybody in this room interested in uh, talking about their continued or lack thereof pursuit of enlightenment? Or call it whatever you'd like, enlightenment, freedom. For myself, I work a lot. So I just continue reading and I meditate in the morning. And that's about all I can do for right now with the situations that are going on in my life. You know, I go to a 12-step program too. I don't know anybody that would use language like I'm on a spiritual path, um, pursuing my true nature or enlightenment. It's very rare. People use the term being sober as an absence of alcohol. When somebody pointed me in the direction of saying that to be sober is to be in awakened state. And it just resonated to me because to be without alcohol, I'm more conscious of my environment. And so to be more conscious of my environment, it points me toward enlightenment than being under the influence and just totally unconscious of the present moment. Being sober, would you say that that was like a one-time choice? Or do you have to continually put attention on reminding yourself, in a sense, to stay sober? Absence of alcohol or to stay sober? Go Staying ahead. sober. Staying sober is a continual process, always searching, reading, meditating, but I couldn't do one without the other. The path for me to, to continue by myself is a struggle in itself. I don't have a lot of people in my life to talk, gather with. Gurdjieff and other directions like that is my practice. To me, there are some issues with definitions like enlightenment. The enlightenment a person may encounter, it's the freedom, it's the release of all the fixed ideas affiliated with your focus. When you actually resolve that and burst through that, you, and I use the term you lightly here, 
are then in a condition, a state, which is not you in enlightenment. It is just simply the reality. That's my understanding of the condition. And I was also wondering if, because you mentioned in the 70s when you were really focused on this pursuit, I have talked to people who have had LSD experiences who felt as though they had experienced a Satori-type experience. And a lot of them carried that with them afterward. And I'm wondering if you had personally experienced that. And if so, if the lack of your trying so hard now is that you're already there and you're an enlightened being trying to live in a really kind of not very enlightened world. Uh, no. <laughs> and when you were talking about in this process from Satori to certain states, I was kind of like, yeah, I've read those things. I've read about that. I don't have the personal experience of it. Back to that Leonard Cohen song from the beginning about, but it's not the truth today. So 40 years or more ago, my understanding of things was very different. But it was the truth then. I understood things about myself a certain way. And that was the truth to me. That's not the truth today. The truth is very different today about myself. Because I did not know myself very well back then. So I wouldn't make any claims to like what you were suggesting could be possible about being enlightened but not know it. But my perspective on myself has changed, for sure. And the change in perspective on myself changes my relationship to life and the way that I live life. I know more about where fear lives in me today than I did 40 years ago and how manipulated I was by it. And still am, but it's less. So the less that fear is manipulating what I do changes my relationship to life and how I go about doing things. There are psychological things that change that make life a little easier. The point I'm trying to get to doesn't really have anything to do with enlightenment, necessarily. It could have to do with almost anything that we once held as important and wanted. I'm a window cleaner cleaning people's houses. I see people all the time, every day, in two or three houses a day. I see lots of different people. And I'm often coming across people who, my age, some even younger, mostly a little older, talking about this ideal they had for their life, whether it was to do art. That's a great example, to do art or to write. Or maybe we'll get to talk about music and they'll talk about the ideal they had of being a musician when they were younger. But they got caught up in life. They got distracted by life. And to me, that whole consideration about enlightenment is just sort of a doorway into what I consider actually a broader discussion. Because the whole conversation about enlightenment is so narrow to me. But the broader conversation would be 
the inspiration we had in our younger years to do something, to make a difference. It's interesting because I talked to, well, both my daughters, but particularly my younger daughter and her husband, I talk with some of their friends. They want to do something that makes a difference in the world. And they want to do that kind of work. And for me, work was just a way to get money. I never had that ever. I got out of high school and I was like, I just want to go to work, make money, have a car, get around, that kind of thing. And, but they want to do something that makes a difference. So I think a lot of people are like that. And somehow it seems like that may get lost if we don't pay attention to it over the course of the problems of life. It just gets lost in the shuffle, as they say drop through the cracks. And then we end up in our older years lamenting because we can't find our way back into that. We just don't have the energy for it anymore. Following on from what you were saying about just leaving school, being interested to just earn money, I'm guessing there's some sort of change or triggering situation which put you maybe on the path. Would that be true to say? The thing that put me on the path was the drug culture and then discovering Be Here Now. You know, Ram Dass, I had no idea there was such a thing as a spiritual path <laughs> before I read that book. And then maybe six or seven years later, I met my teacher and that changed everything for me. That put me on a very specific path. I think that our definitions of enlightenment or our definitions of making a contribution changes as we grow older and being able to get through a conversation without it escalating can be enough. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, Yeah, I think that like a good wine, the richness of life starts to show up for us in the moment rather than so flamboyantly I think that LSD in its day was a great catalyst. I remember you read Be Here Now, you you read In Search of the Miraculous and the Autobiography of a Yogi, Paramananda's book. Those were the books everybody was either reading one or the other. But when you take LSD, you get a taste that, hey, what these people are talking about is real. I quickly found out that, yes, it's real, but LSD is not the way. You need to find guidance. You need something else goes on. But some of what I saw in LSD never left in the sense of responsibility for being here. I don't know if you want to open up that quote, enlightenment is the knowledge that everything is transitory, including enlightenment. Enlightenment, it's an undefined term in this conversation. I'd like to leave it that way, too. Oh, okay. That's intentional. Good. Yes, it is. I guess. So anybody can fill in the blank. So when you say yesterday's truth may not be the truth today, the way I hear that is that all of us as a culture, we're so unaware of our own essence, so unfamiliar with the non-dual aspect of reality. All of us have slowly as a culture become more and more familiar with the territory. So the gap is less. In Zen, they say, 
big delusion, big enlightenment, because there's such a huge gap mm. from going to zero to something. So I think one possibility might be that yesterday's truth of needing to discover our essential nature through Satori or whatever, it's now happened. You're not going to find God in Zen. You're not going to find God in enlightenment. But he's here. But are we looking for freedom, can't show Satori? Or are we looking for that loving embrace from God? Something like that. If I find myself not pursuing that anymore, I'm questioning why. Whatever it is, whatever that thing is. Or if I am still pursuing it, why is it taking so long? If God is here, do we need to work? And what would work be? I mean, my ideas on that have changed a lot over the years. When I first stumbled on the path, I thought of enlightenment as a fantasy, or at least I look at it as a fantasy now. But as a cure for suffering, what happened was I just got more and more in touch with my suffering and felt like enlightenment is the way out, whatever that is. I didn't know what it was, but I thought if you did these things, you'd, you'd get there. And now I'm not interested, I don't think, hardly at all, in attaining anything like some state, trying to get to the state, but more in relating and surrendering to life. I mean, I'm acutely, well, sometimes <laughs> in touch with when I'm not surrendered, what it feels like in my body. and my self-centeredness, not to judge that, but when that's been the way and I'm identified, grasping, holding on, you know, I'm interested in surrendering in relaxing that, but also serving in some way. I mean, that's just a natural impulse that I think has gotten exposed more in ways that just come naturally rather than pushing to try to do something. So I do have some interest in all that. Yeah, my interest in enlightenment, in quotes, has dissipated a lot, but I don't feel I'm less passionate about the path. But I also have to stalk myself. I think that these are interesting questions, which you're either raising or alluding to. Like, have I given up the pursuit of enlightenment because I'm more interested in comfort yeah. than in the path? Yeah. Or is the work that I was involved in for so long, is that really necessary? Or was that something that had its time and place? But is there some necessity and urgency necessary on the path? And is it still alive in me? Those are some questions that come up as you speak. Hi, I wonder if the question is, instead of where is enlightenment, it would be like, where is my spiritual fire? What happened to my fire? Yeah. And that boils down to, am I or am I not still self-motivated? And why and why not? Yeah, exactly. That's something to read. You use the word passion. What happened to that passion? And this carries a bit of passion with it. I don't think I can read the whole thing, but there's definitely pieces of it. 
It's by David Foster Wallace. It's a commencement speech that he gave to the graduating class of Kenyon College in 2008. And I came across it a couple of weeks ago and then found it immensely inspiring. Let's see. So he starts off, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit. And then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? He says, of course, the main requirement of speeches like this is that I'm supposed to talk about your liberal arts education, meaning to try to explain why the degree you are about to receive has actual human value instead of just a material payoff. So let's talk about the single most pervasive cliche in the commencement speech genre, which is that a liberal arts education is not so much about filling you up with knowledge as it is about teaching you how to think. If you're like me as a student, you've never liked hearing this, and you tend to feel a bit insulted by the claim that you needed anybody to teach you how to think, since the fact that you even got admitted to a college this good seems like proof that you already know how to think. But I'm going to posit you that the liberal arts cliche turns out to be not insulting at all, because the really significant education in thinking that we're supposed to get in a place like this isn't really about the capacity to think, but rather about the choice of what to think about. If your total freedom of choice regarding what to think about seems too obvious to waste time discussing, I'd ask you to think about fish and water and to bracket for just a few minutes your skepticism about the value of the totally obvious. Then he tells another story. There are these two guys sitting in a bar in the remote Alaskan wilderness. One of the guys is religious and the other is an atheist. And the two are arguing about the existence of God with that special intensity that comes after about the fourth beer. And the atheist says, look, it's not like I don't have an actual reason for not believing in God. It's not like I haven't ever experimented with the whole God and prayer thing. Just last month, I got caught away from camp in that terrible blizzard, and I was totally lost, and I couldn't see a thing, and it was 50 below. And so I tried it. I fell to my knees in the snow and cried out, oh, God, if there is a God, I'm lost in this blizzard, and I'm going to die if you don't help me. And now in the bar, the religious guy looks at the atheist all puzzled, and he says, well, then you must believe now. After all, you're here. You're alive. The atheist just rolls his eyes, says, no, man. All that was a couple of Eskimos happened to come wandering by and showed me the way back to camp. It's easy to run this story through a kind of standard liberal arts analysis. The exact same experience can mean two totally different things to two different people, given these people's two different belief templates and two different ways of constructing meaning from experience. Because we prize tolerance and diversity of belief, nowhere in our liberal arts analysis do we want to claim that one guy's interpretation is true and the other guy's is false or bad, which is fine, except we never end up talking about just where these individual templates and beliefs come from, meaning where they come from inside the two guys. So there's a question in there for anybody reading or listening to this about 
our beliefs and the meaning that we give to experience. Where do those come from? Where do they originate? What keeps them going? And he gets more into this whole thing about the meaning that we give to experience and the fact that we have choice about the meaning that we give to experience. So here's just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to automatically be sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There's no experience you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world, as you experience it, is there in front of you, behind you, to the left or right of you, on your TV or your monitor, and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediately urgent, so real. And then he goes on to talk about being in the grocery store and being in line, and there's this woman standing there. She's yelling at her child in the grocery store. And the meaning he gives to that, and the meaning he gives it, this woman is a complete asshole. She doesn't know how to parent. She's a complete idiot. But then he poses the idea that, well, maybe her husband is dying of cancer, and she's been up with him every night for the last three nights and still has to work a full-time job. And now she's here in the grocery store on a Friday night with her kid because she can't leave her kid at home with her husband. He says, maybe that's the truth. So he goes into talking about choosing to look at things differently. And it doesn't even have to be that extreme. You sit down with a person you always sit down with at breakfast and they give you a certain look. And you give meaning to it. No words exchange, it's just that look. And maybe it doesn't mean that at all. On a humorous level, it's the meaning we give to the expressions on infants. And we go, oh, they look so happy. And it's gas. They're actually grimacing because they have to fart. They can't. But we look at the expressions on their faces and we go, oh, that's so cute. And we give meaning to what we're seeing. So the question about where do these templates for meaning come from that we all have? And everybody's is different. That's the thing. Can have two people be in the same room and experience the same thing, but it's not exactly because they're different. And they have different templates and they're giving different meanings to the same thing that's happening or simply looking at the same piece of art hanging on the wall. And they have a different experience from it and give it different meaning because of the colors or because of the expressions and the characters that have been painted. Has anybody heard this piece before? A lot of people I've talked to have heard it before, but you can go and find it online. And it's great to just read the whole thing. It really communicates something. Just look up his name, David Foster Wallace, and you'll find it. There are recordings of it, of the actual speech rather than just the transcript of it. He says, but most days, if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice, you can choose to look differently at the fat, dead-eyed, over-made-up lady 
who just screamed at her kid in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Or maybe this very lady is a low-wage clerk at the motor vehicle department who just yesterday helped your spouse resolve a horrific, infuriating red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. Of course, none of this is likely, but it's also not impossible. It just depends on what you want to consider. If you're automatically sure that you know what reality is and you are operating on your default setting, then you, like me, probably won't consider possibilities that aren't annoying and miserable. But if you really learn how to pay attention, then you will know there are other options. It will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell type situation as not only meaningful, but sacred, on fire, with the same force that made the stars, love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things deep down. Not that that mystical stuff is necessarily true. The only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide how you're going to try to see it. This, I submit, is the freedom of a real education, of learning how to be well-adjusted. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because there's something else that's weird but true in the day-to-day trenches of adult life. There is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths, or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And then he goes on to talk about worshiping money, worshiping power, worshiping your own body, that kind of thing, and how they'll eat you alive. So what he's talking about is attention and the choice we have to move our attention from one place to another, from assuming we actually understand what the reality of the situation is to maybe that we don't. That maybe, like the example he gives about the woman in the supermarket, he gives another example about being cut off by an SUV on the way home from the supermarket on a Friday night in this consumer hell. And he's worked all day and he gets cut off by an SUV. And his first reaction is, like most of ours is going to be, it's pretty strong annoyance. But maybe the guy in the SUV is actually trying to get his son to the hospital because it's an emergency. But we assume that the guy's just an asshole with a big SUV. And in Arizona, he's got to be from California, which makes him some a bigger asshole because he just moved here to ruin our wonderful Arizona atmosphere. But maybe that's not actually what reality is, the way we're seeing it. What he's saying is we have a choice to possibly look at it differently. And that's something that's true, that we do have a choice that is possible to do. There's a lot there. My first reaction was, I don't know if we spend that much time on 
things, the meaning of this, the meaning of that. I believe our attention is mine is very where you just don't spend it looking at something for very long before you're distracted and going on to something else. So this presumption that we actually can care enough to pursue meaning of anything to me is a big assumption. If there's any pursuit of anything, it's wow, let's have a pursuit of having a pursuit. I just don't think we have pursuits anymore. And the other thing I was thinking about was, I think we are affected by trends. And there was a trend in the 60s and 70s of something, whatever that whole time was of waking up. I think what happened was the real work that it required became to dawn on us. And we're like, whoa, I'm not sure if we're up for that. It was fun, but now it's really real work. Seems to me the pursuit is self-medication. It just seems like there's huge interest in self-medication. If you want to consider religion and spirituality self-medication, maybe everything I'm doing is just self-medicating because the discomfort of self, I wouldn't be surprised if self-medication comes in all kinds of forms. Maybe we just want the freedom from discomfort. That was an idea. Yes. Yeah, using spirituality as a form of spiritual bypass to avoid our feelings. That's a very good point. I really like the material you presented of David Foster Wallace, but there's a presumption in there is that we have choice. Right. And a lot of certain sciences are saying we have no free will. There's no choice, which I agree with and don't agree with. And I don't know that I want to go into that, but it's important. What story do we invent about the things that happen to us that go on in our life? Can we choose a story or are we going to default to whatever our um, conditioned story is? I mean, yeah, those damn scientists and non-dualists, they like to say there's no choice in anything. It's all predetermined and all that. I'm not so convinced. If I find myself in like a bad mood, Everything just pisses me off. I can choose to put my attention elsewhere than on that constant monologue, that loop that perpetuates the mood, that constant thinking about the problem, the situation, whatever it was that got me into this. I mean, sometimes I just wake up that way. There's no apparent cause and effect, but often there is. But even then, everything just adds fuel to the fire and, and it's an effort but I can choose not to perpetuate that loop. And some people say, you know, chant the name of God. Some people say, just go chop some wood, do something physical. It can be different things for different people. But the point is to shift that attention away from that thing, because why do I want to keep that around, that mood? Again, what is that could be self-medicating too, to try to avoid feeling something. So I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about self-medicating or avoidance or spiritual bypassing or anything. I think choice is a potential. And to me, there's only one potential to choose, and that's to turn the other cheek in a manner of speaking. You've embodied that potential, but it doesn't look like it's generally embodied to me. People yell at me, open their windows and yell at me while I'm driving, which they have good cause to. 
it's still, still not really useful. Um, I'm sorry you, about that. I didn't really mean to do that the other day. <laughs> but yeah, there's a potential. The potential doesn't always mean that it's been actualized, that it's embodied or implemented. I would say everybody in this Zoom room has done this. That's why we're not at the bar drinking and dancing tonight. 30, the night is still young. (laughs) If one of the characteristics of enlightenment is being open and not being so attached to a point of view, I would say enlightenment is alive and well. It exists, but maybe it just doesn't get so much attention. Maybe we've reframed the language of what we do on the path. So it's not so focused on getting somewhere. But if we're aware of these things that you're talking about and working with them, we're on the path. And enlightenment. You start off one of the characteristics. Yeah. So for me, that's one of those things that is not the truth today. Like it was. So I used to have a whole list, whole box full of what to me would be the characteristics of an enlightened being. And they don't apply today. That was my truth then. And that's not the truth today. I have no idea what characteristics of enlightenment would be. None. Like zero. And that's my truth today.